This week on the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. If success or failure of this planet and of human beings depended on how I am and what I do, then how would I be and what would I do? I'm Neil Harvey. It's Cosmomimicry. We're the universe mattering. David McConville joins us this week on the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. Seeing is believing. And then again, believing is seeing. The way we see the world also creates that world. As the physical realities of human-induced climate disruption and ecological degradation escalate, big changes are gestating everywhere, breakdown and breakthrough. Paradigms are dying and being born. It's time for a new story, a new way of seeing that we can believe in. Or, as designer David McConville puts it, the universe we design for is the universe we're going to get. This is Cosmo Mimicry, We're the Universe Mattering, with Buckminster Fuller Institute Board Chairman David McConville. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. You know, there's this view, I think, of what the universe is today that we sometimes don't question often. And for thousands of generations, it was very, very different. People would turn to the dome of the sky and really start to think about the cycles of life, the regenerative capacity, the relationships between the celestial and the terrestrial. And our ancestors' very survival in many ways depended on their ability to correlate these cycles in order to anticipate, synchronize with all of this stuff that was inseparable from lived experience. The world was animated and alive. David McConville is a media artist who designs visualization tools for seeing the world in new ways. As board chairman of the Buckminster Fuller Institute, he facilitates connections across design, art, science, and technology to cultivate whole system strategies for addressing today's complex global challenges. He says our view of the universe profoundly shapes our future as a species. So what is that view? Where did it come from? And what does it mean? David McConville spoke at a Bioneers conference. About 2,500 years ago, this really radically new view of the cosmos came into being. And this was really essential for the birth of Western civilization. It was actually Plato who first kind of imagined the world from this kind of God's eye view outside of the universe. In his Timaeus, he was recounting uh, kind of the creation of the world, and he had a, what he called the Demiurge, and the Demiurge was to him the mind of God. And so he was imagining what it would look like to remove himself with his intellect to be separate from the world. And this became really central to a view that his student Aristotle then developed further. He had these celestial spheres that he imagined that were holding up the stars and the planets. And this became known as the geocentric model of the cosmos. Ptolemy later adopted it. But this was really something that was profoundly influencing 
the Western imagination for many, many, many years. And then this was actually appropriated by the Catholic and the Protestant churches after the, in the Middle Ages. So God really became seen as this demiurge, this unmoved mover, this creator outside of the sphere of the world. And Aristotle had this idea that Mother Earth was corruptible. I mean, we kind of think about geocentrism as being people were cocky and they thought they were in the middle and they were so naive and they'd see the stars moving around. But really, it was that he envisioned this being the worst place to be and that the heavens, which were masculine, he saw his father's sky, was this transcendent world that we would go to either in our minds or at the point of death. And then around 500 years ago, Nicholas Copernicus came along quite famously and suggested that actually, you know, he did some calculations, and he thought that the sun might be at the center. And he felt that he was actually elevating the earth to the status of a planet going around this central fire. And this is a really profound move, but not for the reason that we're usually told, because what he actually did was elevate Plato's God's eye view, this sense of us being removed even further in many ways. David McConville suggests that perhaps Western civilization's biggest systems error has been the belief that human beings are separate from nature and the cosmos. The Copernican revolution that birthed the scientific revolution upended people's belief systems about who we are and how we fit. The idea that no longer was Earth divinely ordained as the fixed center of the universe was Earth-shattering. This model profoundly challenged the intuitive sense that we can trust ourselves. That when we look up at the sky and we see all the stars rotating around, that all of a sudden we had to use our imaginations to think, oh my God, is this completely wrong? Is my intuition about lived experience something that I can no longer trust? The intellect is telling me something that my senses aren't. How do we reconcile this? And this resulted in a number of developments, not the least of which, like when the telescope came along, was discovered shortly after Copernicus, or was invented, that it essentially shattered the celestial spheres. That by being able to see things actually moving in the sky, that Galileo and others realized that the celestial spheres weren't there. This later led Nietzsche's madman to proclaim, God is dead and we've killed him. He was actually talking about the disappearance of the spheres and the heavens above. And this really embedded this profound notion of the mediocrity principle, sometimes called the Copernican principle, in the heart of Western science. And that's that Earth is nowhere special. It's just like everywhere else. The elements here, the physical laws, it's just like everywhere. So therefore, everywhere must be like here. And so we could go anywhere else, and we would find that there is no privileged position from which to observe. And the idea of the clockwork universe really took hold as something that eventually we would be able to discern kind of a theory of everything and mechanistically predict everything that was happening in the cosmos. And this really led to a profound sense of separation, even more so than Plato, that Descartes and others, they started to see the mind and the body as separate, but more importantly, it really seemed to affirm the separation of humans and nature and our capacity for the intellect to be outside of the world. This new way of seeing rocked civilization. We came to believe we're master and possessor of nature. We sought to know nature by reducing life to the mechanical parts of a machine. 
we've held ourselves as the supreme and only conscious intelligence in an otherwise mechanistic, random universe, nowhere special. This worldview has led us to land's end today. When we think about science, we think about objectivity. We think that we can have this God's eye view from nowhere, telling us something through our imaginations, through our intellect, that our sense experiences won't necessarily show. And that has really resulted in all of these assumptions leading into these externalities, right? Within the current economic system, we've been able to somehow justify and fragment and reduce things to such a degree that we can ignore the consequences of our actions oftentimes because we still somehow have the sense that we're not really here. And we're dealing with the consequences of this all the time, this mechanistic paradigm of reductionism and abstraction. We've replaced the certainty of faith with the infallibility of science. We've treated life as a commodity to be exploited and harnessed science to the corruptions of treasure, power, and empire. Although we have access to unparalleled knowledge, we're destroying our only home. It's a far cry, says McConville, from the techno-utopian fantasies of the 1950s when the U.S. government geared up to excite the American imagination to fund the space program. Stoked by the popular media, schoolchildren were primed with fantastical space-age characters, the Jetsons and Disney's Tomorrowland, promised Promethean adventures to find life on other planets to explore and conquer. It hasn't turned out that way. And in a single generation, we've actually managed to go to Mars, but the only hyper-intelligent robots we found there were the ones that we sent, right? And like, not only did they not find those lowly forms of plant life, they didn't find any life at all. If you want to see what an alien world looks like, go to West Virginia. <laughs> Mountaintops are being decimated, right? And instead of dreaming about life on other worlds, we can go to Alberta and check out what's going on with the tar sands. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're actually living on this planet like we actually believe we have somewhere else to go. According to the Global Footprint Network, we're averaging over one and a half Earths. And Resilient scientists are even quantifying a lot of things way beyond climate change that we're doing to the planet. We've got aerosol loading, we've got biodiversity loss, we've got all kinds of changes in land use. So this is really about understanding how we're tipping, what the scientists call tipping towards the unknown, engaged in this high-stakes game of unwittingly crossing these planetary boundaries of the safe operating space of humanity. And given the overwhelming complexity of these problems, it's a little surprise that people would be anxious to find somewhere else to go. You see these headlines all the time now. We have this recent flurry of reports on the hunt for planets outside of our solar system that really seem to feed into these dreams of escape. While scientists hunt for galactic escape on planets that could sustain life, here on Earth, we're tipping toward the unknown, crashing the ecological boundaries of humanity's safe operating space. Of course, to actually reach these potential Earth 2.0 planets would take us hundreds of thousands of years, longer than humans have been a species. McConville reminds us we're Earthlings, and escaping to some galactic frontier well, ain't going to happen anytime soon. In the late 60s, when the Apollo astronauts took the iconic Earthrise photo of the whole Earth, for the first time, we saw the breathtakingly beautiful blue marble we call home. 
Thousands of satellites now circle the planet and streak across space, relaying images and information about Earth, our solar system, and beyond. There's an explosion of new information about the universe. But the biggest news of our generation hasn't really hit the headlines yet. Earth is at the center of this new cosmic model. Huh? <laughs> like, what? So astronomers call it our observational center because it's inevitably the point from which life emerged and has evolved to be able to imagine the cosmos, right? So wherever you're observing for is going to be your observational center. But what they fail to actually acknowledge, because they're astronomers, they don't study ecology so much, but it's also our ecological center, right? When we return to our senses, we actually find that this is still the only place we've discovered that supports life. We now know that Earth is the only planet in the habitable zone of our own solar system, which the necessary temperatures to support abundant liquid water, the Goldilocks zone. And one might assume that these types of insights into the nature of life would cause a paradigm shift on the scale of the Copernican revolution. But it hasn't yet, because we're still being taught these extremely outdated views of the cosmos. In the end, no one can explain why paradigms change. They just do. It's the zeitgeist, something in the air. Stories change, and the world changes. Science tells a dramatically different story today. The linear, mechanistic, reductionist worldview is yielding to a vastly more complex view of interdependence. The oneness and interconnection of everything are irreducible, dynamic, fluid. Mystery abounds. From the Gaia hypothesis to complexity theory, this new scientific revolution is showing the Earth does not revolve around us. And we're turning the telescope inward, learning we're surrounded by elders, we're dynamic participants in the dance of creation. And the Copernican revolution is coming full circle to reveal ever larger circles. But we actually know that the sun isn't static. It's orbiting around the galactic core at about half a million miles an hour, and our planet really is a living spaceship. <laughs> and if we pay close attention, we can become attuned to the complex patterns all around us. As Bucky was fond of saying, we really are astronauts. And to paraphrase William Blake, we really can see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower. Infinity is actually there in the palm of your hand, and eternity is in every hour. So Buckminster Fuller didn't actually think that universe could be comprehensively defined, but that we could learn a lot by trying. By discerning the synergistic principles operating within nature, he felt human civilization could be designed from a whole system's perspective to do more and better with less. His tombstone is inscribed with the admonition to call him trim tab, which is a reminder of his primary design metaphor. And this is the tiniest rudder on a ship that steers its entire trajectory. They demonstrate kind of relatively small amounts of leverage can produce maximum advantageous change. Small amounts of leverage producing maximum advantageous change. Sounds pretty good. When we return, an example of a game-changing trim tab solution from the Buckminster Fuller Challenge competition and operating instructions for how we can truly reach for the stars. This is Cosmomimicry. We're the universe mattering. I'm Neil Harvey. 
You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. To explore all available Bioneers radio shows and video programming, please visit Bioneers.org. If the universe we design for is the universe we're going to get, how do we change the design? The Buckminster Fuller Institute holds an annual Global Challenge Award with a $100,000 prize for tangible examples of trim-tab whole-system solutions. Again, David McConville. We put out a call for projects designed to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. It's good, right? The 2011 winner, Blue Ventures, found a way to dramatically improve the health and economic vitality of poor fishing communities in Madagascar through spontaneous cooperation. In this case, the trim tab was the cycles of octopus sex. Right? Octopi are critical for the livelihoods of these communities, but they were in serious decline due to overfishing. And so Blue Ventures worked with them to find out how to give them the rest they needed, the octopi the rest they needed, so that their populations could regenerate. So successful, their strategy is now being emulated by, I think, 100 communities up and down the west coast of Madagascar, and this has created the largest community-protected marine preserve in the Indian Ocean, all without government funding. The trim tab, cycles of octopus sex, lead to a sustainably managed marine reserve. As a designer, David McConville co-founded the Illuminati, a design and engineering firm whose clients include NASA, Disney, Cirque du Soleil, and 350.org. For the last decade, in Asheville, North Carolina, he's catalyzed and collaborated with community initiatives to develop systems-oriented solutions to energy, environmental, and educational challenges. As the creative director of the World Views Network, he partners with artists, scientists, and educators using storytelling and visualization in science centers nationwide to facilitate dialogues about community resilience. The Worldviews Network project also teaches ecological literacy in planetariums. During a leading-edge-of-design panel at the Bioneers Conference, he talked about the value of bringing indigenous voices to the Western science table. We try to get the planetariums to like, turn the camera around and look at the planet. We did a project a few years ago at Cal Academy here in the Golden Gate Park. It was about trees. And so we started working with a lot of, there were some local tribes that were also working with the San Francisco Estuary Institute. And the story that we ended up being able to tell was like from all of these different levels, trees from a cultural perspective, a spiritual perspective, a sort of ecological perspective, the global story. But this is relevant because we later found out it was the first time that any of the native tribes had been invited into Cal Academy for actually participating in this type of production, or any kind of production, actually. And I think that that's really key, is to take very seriously the depth of understanding and knowledge that humans have been able to develop for millennia, 
and understand and acknowledge the degree to which a lot of modern science is coming back around to these same type of realizations and that this, this synthesis and this fusion and the syncretism that can occur is extremely valuable so that it's not just all coming from like, you know, white European guy mythology, because that is the, the driving dominant mythos of a lot of things, but to actually look at what are all the different ways of knowing and how do you engage in that within the educational system. Today, science shows that the observer affects the observed. Reality is interpretive. Knowledge is ambiguous, best approached from diverse viewpoints and ways of knowing. Modern science and ancient wisdom appear to be converging, and none too soon. In an interview, David McConville reminded us that Buckminster Fuller saw it coming many decades ago. Fuller was very explicit about this particular moment in history that we find ourselves. He, would, he actually used the terms, you know, we're facing utopia or oblivion, that the choices we face are quite stark, and that the ways in which we each take responsibility for our actions and applying ourselves and our intellect to be able to understand the nature of the principles operating in universe is going to have everything to do with whether we make it as a species. And he was talking in no uncertain terms about whether we survive evolutionarily in the, in the not-too-distant future. One of the most profound challenges that Fuller posed to himself, but to also anyone that would listen, was that if success or failure of this planet and of human beings depended on how I am and what I do, then how would I be and what would I do? He was very adamant throughout his life that the ways in which you go about affecting this kind of change at this kind of moment in time is by building models that are so profoundly attractive that other people want to copy them. And so if you think back to the Copernican revolution, you know, the, the, the idea that Copernicus created this new model of the universe that eventually was really caught on because people could then check the calculations around Earth going around the the sun and, you know, starting to have all of these follow-on effects of the ways that it, it implied that the old model really was obsolete. That today, we're in a very similar situation, except that in many ways, we've escalated to a higher level of complexity, because now we're realizing through the heart of science, going all the way down, reducing it all to the, to the smallest particles, that we have an effect on what we observe. When we go all the way out to the largest scales of the cosmos, we see that we are central to our own observations. So the past few centuries of the scientific revolution were really about trying to remove ourselves from the equation. And today, this paradigm shift really is putting ourselves back into it, that we are not separate from nature. The technology is actually all around us within what we call the natural world. And that the more that we begin to really understand our role within the shift and the capacities that we have for dealing with this complexity, the more we can begin to design a human civilization that actually is re regenerative and restorative. The most profound insight of modern science is that every one of us is the universe <laughs> becoming aware of itself after billions of years of cosmic evolution you're all something the entire cosmos is doing right now. And the universe matters because we're the universe mattering here on this planet. <laughs> right? And, yeah. 
give yourselves a hand. Just <laughs> like, that's quite a feat. I mean, we don't know how often this happens. And though it's tempting to suggest that the return of this Earth-centered cosmic model implies that the Copernican revolution has come full circle, I think it actually signifies the emergence of a higher level of complexity in which science has confirmed that we are not separate from this planet, that we are all indigenous earthlings. By integrating traditional knowledge with modern science, we can actually truly reach for the stars. But ultimately, it's up to every single one of us to decide if we're going to take on the responsibility, particularly the multi-generational responsibility, that this realization implies. Because there is one thing absolutely certain, and that's that the universe we design for is the universe we're going to get. Thanks. David McConville, indigenous Earthlings, astronauts on Spaceship Earth. We're becoming the universe mattering. And so if it all depends on you, how will you be and what will you do? Cosmomimicry, we're the universe mattering. You can see David McConville's stunning video images of the universe. Explore more Bioneers radio shows and video programming online at Bioneers.org. For information on attending the National Bioneers Conference and Bioneers events in your area, please visit Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Interview recording engineer, Jeff Westman. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Rykodisc label. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at SoundsTrue.com. For more music information, please visit radio.bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life each other, and future generations. This is program number 0814. This program was made possible in part by Organic Valley, pasture-raised organic dairy products bringing the good from our family to yours. Visit organicvalley.coop. Mary's Gone Crackers, healing the planet through conscious eating, gluten-free and vegan products since 2004. Learn more at marysgonecrackers.com. John Masters Organics. Feel good about looking good. Visit johnmasters.com. Funding also provided by a grant from the Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues, and by the generous support of listeners like you.